I'm going to start by stepping over here and talking. All right, is, are we good? Can you hear me? All right, good stuff. Apparently my walking around last night didn't agree with the microphone. I was going to try to make sure it does tonight. Thank you for being here. If you got your New Testaments with you, open up to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, we will be focusing most of our attention tonight in 2 Timothy. So we'll be opening up your New Testaments there. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to come back here to East Texas for a little while and to uh, be with you all and to study God's Word with you. It's been a, a pleasure. It's always nice to come here to Mount Pleasant to see familiar faces. Uh, of course, spending time with Leon and Alma, who have meant so much to me over the years, and not only me, but to my family, and who are a reason that, that I am the person I am today. I appreciate you guys so much. Uh, good to see the Fergusons. Good to catch up with them. Didn't know the Rockets were going to be here. And it was great to finally meet you guys uh, after knowing your boys for, for so long. Nice to see my Upshur County friends here. And uh, we, we were looking back in my photo album tonight and saw a picture of us from uh, Nacogdoches right after going to a bluegrass concert the day before. Good to see you guys. I was looking for Mr. Bob. I don't see Mr. Bob, but I see Miss Dinah, and it's good to see you, Miss Dinah, and, and, and the good work that you guys have done here and what you mean to everybody. And then Drew and Megan, and, and Drew said nice things. I'm going to have to pay Drew as I leave. He said such nice things about me. I really, I really appreciate that. I, I don't know that I had it all figured out. Uh, and and uh, I've told some of you I, I did not always want to be a preacher. But uh, I, had, I had some really good teachers in my life, and I'm thankful, thankful for them. And anything that I accomplish and anything that I am, it's, it's due in overwhelming part to the good teachers that I have had and to the grace of God. <clears throat> Servanthood is a concept that we see all throughout Scripture. We are called to be servants. We are called to be servants for no other reason than that's what Jesus was. He was a servant, and like we sang yesterday in our morning Bible class, we pray to God to make us servants, just like Jesus. He was a servant, and we want to be one too. Throughout Scripture, we see different portraits of people who embody the principles of servanthood. It's not just Jesus. It's people like Aquila and Priscilla. It's people like Dorcas. And one that we're going to talk about tonight, perhaps you haven't thought of this man in this way, but I would submit to you one of the greatest pictures of servanthood that we see all throughout the New Testament is, is in the life of a man by the name of Onesiphorus. If we're in the Piney Woods, it's one sip Horus. Onesiphorus. A man who is mentioned to us only twice in Scripture. But in those two instances where he is mentioned, we find instance after instance of a man who evidently dedicated his life to serving others, even at expense to himself. We want to talk a little bit about the servanthood 
of Onesiphorus tonight and what that might mean to you and to me. Two passages we want to start with uh, this evening. The two places in Scripture where he is mentioned by name. The first is in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Let's look over here at verse 15 beginning. 2 Timothy chapter 1 starting in verse 15. Paul says, you are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and he found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. Then look at chapter 4, same book, chapter 4 in verse 19. Where this time we have relatively little, simply this. Greet Prisha and Aquila, that seems to be a shortened version of the name Priscilla. Greet Prisha and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. And that's all we know about this man. These two scriptures are the sum total that we are given in God's word about this man. But I would submit to you that there is a lot to know about him. And a lot that is applicable to our lives from his life. You see there in chapter 4 this this reference to uh, Aquila and Priscilla. Back in Acts chapter 18 and verse 2. Aquila and Priscilla leave Rome and they arrive in Corinth where they meet Paul. And in chapter 18 and verse 18 of Acts, Aquila and Priscilla leave with Paul for the city of Ephesus. And it's in Ephesus that Aquila and Priscilla start working with a man by the name of Apollos. Do you remember this story? Uh, They took him aside, explained to him the way of God more accurately. We come later in the New Testament to Romans chapter 16 and verse 3 and and Aquila and Priscilla seem to be referenced uh, as being back in the city of Rome and hosting Christians in their home that there was a church that assembled in the home of Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, If we have our chronology right, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 19, It seems that Aquila and Priscilla have then left Rome again and this time are in the city of Corinth where again they seem to be hosting uh, the church in their home. I think I said they're in Corinth. They're not in Corinth. Uh, They're in Ephesus. If we have the geography and the chronology right, it seems that they are hosting the church in their home. And as you come then to what we just read in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 19 it seems likely that Aquila and Priscilla are still in Ephesus, possibly, most likely, being greeted by Paul for the last time. And who happens to be part of that church in Ephesus that might be meeting in their home is the household, the home, the family of this man, Onesiphorus. We say that Paul is writing to them possibly for the last time because Paul's uh, situation right now is kind of dire. Uh, As we come into 2 Timothy, uh, Paul is in what we would call his second Roman imprisonment. 
Uh, look at 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 9. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 9. You may remember that at the end of the book of Acts, remember along about chapter uh, 21, chapters 20 and 21, Paul is making his way back to Jerusalem. He wants to be there for uh, one of the Jewish festivals because he has a great opportunity to teach God's Word to thousands of people there. While he is there, uh, the Jews accuse him of violating the sanctity of the temple. Uh, they eventually trump up charges against him. They incite a riot. He's rescued by the skin of his teeth, taken to the barracks. He's going to give an address that's going to upset half of the audience. Uh, the commanders there in Jerusalem are going to beat him. They're going to whip him. Until you remember, Paul reminds them that he's a Roman citizen. And that they don't have any right to do that. And eventually, as the book of Acts plays out, Paul is eventually going to appeal to Caesar, to have his case heard by Caesar, as was the right of any Roman citizen. And so the, the tail end of the book of Acts has Paul traveling from Jerusalem to Rome, where he is going to have his case heard by Caesar. And the book of Acts ends with Paul being two years under what we might call his first Roman imprisonment, which really was seems to be house arrest for two years. And if we can read between the lines of Scripture, it seems that for a time he is released from Roman custody after that period of home confinement, only to later be imprisoned again. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 9, Paul makes reference to the hardship that he is suffering, even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the Word of God is not imprisoned. Here he is incarcerated again. And it's not only that he is incarcerated. Look at chapter 4, two chapters later. Look at chapter 4 and verse 6. He is incarcerated. And he realizes death is on the horizon. He's imprisoned as a criminal. He is in chains. And he says, I am ready to be poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. He seems to be very sure of the fact uh, that he's not getting out of this Roman imprisonment like he did the last time. Or if we might phrase it differently, he is going to get out of this Roman imprisonment, but he's only going to get out of it by death. He seems to understand that quite clearly. He seems to speak in language here, verse 6, uh, that is almost sacrificial in nature. As if Paul is imprisoned for the gospel and he's going to die for the gospel. Death is approaching. But, but even as death is approaching, as you jump back to chapter 3, right in the middle here of chapters 2 and 4, Paul's concern is not about himself. Uh, in First and Second Timothy and in Titus, which chronologically kind of all fit together, Paul's not concerned about himself. He's concerned about Titus and Timothy, two preachers that he has great influence over. He's concerned about them, them doing the work of an evangelist. And he's concerned about his brethren. Carrying on and maintaining faithfulness in his absence. Chapter 3 and verse 1. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit these to faithful people who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. 
No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. Hardship is coming. He is in a difficult position. Chapter 3 and verse 1, in the last days, difficult times are going to come. Men are going to be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, all of this parade of horribles. In verse 5, avoid such men as these. He is worried about his friends. He's worried about his brethren. And it's not until we get to the very end of chapter 4 that Paul communicates that he does have a concern for himself. Chapter 4 and verse 9. He says, Make every effort, Timothy, to come to me soon. For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, only Lucas with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful for me for service. But Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus, and when you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus, and the books, and especially the parchments. Come to me soon, he says. I need you. Paul is dying. Paul is imprisoned. Paul is worried. And in the midst of all of this hardship, twice in this book, he expresses his thanks to God for a man by the name of Onesiphorus. Which might lead us to ask this question, where is Onesiphorus? He has praised him in chapter 1 for the services that he rendered. But here in chapter 4, he makes no mention of Onesiphorus being present with Priscilla and Aquila. He mentions Onesiphorus' household. We have multiple references here in 2 Timothy to his household. Uh, the, the, the references to him specifically in chapter 1 and verse 16, there's a reference to Onesiphorus when he refreshed Paul while he was in prison. In chapter 1 and verse 17, there's a reference to when Onesiphorus searched diligently for Paul. And in verse 18, there's a reference to some episode in which Onesiphorus served commendably and stood beside Paul in Ephesus. But as you look at verses 16 in chapter 4 and verse 19, we get the distinct impression Onesiphorus is not with his family. Where is he? It doesn't seem like he's dead. Paul speaks of him in chapter 1 and verse 18 uh, 
seemingly as though he still lives, so if he is still alive but not with his family, yet Paul speaks glowingly of him, I'm kind of led to the conclusion that Onesiphorus himself might now be imprisoned. Which associating with what the state would view as a known criminal like Paul is not too much of a stretch of the imagination. But yet this man who is referenced very passingly lays down for us a great example of what service looks like. Sometimes I think we convince ourselves that if we are to be true servants of God and we are to put the principles of servanthood into practice in our lives, what we have to do are big things. We have to organize community-wide, city-wide, state-wide events. We have to feed masses of people. We have to clothe throngs of people. Uh, We have to reach out and individually and personally touch the lives of thousands. And if we don't do that, if we don't reach the masses, it seems almost like we have convinced ourselves that somehow we have failed in our duty to be servants. And if if that's our thought process, could I very gingerly challenge that tonight? Onesiphorus is not a man who goes out and, and reaches the masses. But he was nonetheless a servant. An esteemed servant. A servant well spoken of. What did he do that was so servant-like? The first thing we find out is he refreshed Paul. Uh, Come back to chapter 1, and let's work through this a little bit. Chapter 1 and verse 16, where Paul records this for us, The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me, and he was not ashamed of my chains. He often refreshed me. That that word refreshed in the Greek means to, to recreate by fresh air, to cool down. A breath of fresh air. That's what Onesiphorus was to Paul. Can you think of people like that in your life? People who were a breath of fresh air to you. That when your life had grown stale, when your life was difficult, when things were overwhelmingly challenging, here comes in someone to your life that breathes fresh air into it. Who rejuvenates you. Who lights a spark under you. reaches a hand down for you. That was Onesiphorus. There's something unique that's going on here, though, with with how Paul describes Onesiphorus. Paul is in prison when Onesiphorus comes to him. Ah, I'm I'm sure all of you have this book in your libraries at home. Uh, Penal Practice and Penal Policy in Ancient Rome by O.F. Robinson. I know that's a standard work. Uh, I'm sure you have this on your nightstand for your nightly reading, right? War and Peace, something by Michael Crichton, and then Penal Practice and Penal Policy in Ancient Rome. Okay? So old hat, I know, to most of us, but I want to share this quote with you. As Mr. Robinson talks about prisons in the ancient world and specifically Roman prisons uh, in the first century. He said prisons in the ancient world would seem to have been dark 
places of stifling heat and thirst and hunger. We hear little about them in the sources except for the martyrdoms where the view is from below. Uh, Simply, what we know about prisons from this time is mostly from the prisoners who got out. Uh, The guards and things like that didn't record a whole lot in history about what the prisons were like. What we do know from the writings of those who had been prisoners is this, Mr. Robinson says. Normally, prisoners' very condition made them notice this invisible people. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Invisible people. Prison was deliberately a place of terror designed to strip the prisoner of all dignity and designed to induce confessions by both physical and psychological means. They were going to beat a confession out of you or they were going to isolate you or some other way psychologically try to induce a confession out of you. There were rations, but they were minimal. For friends and family were expected to supply prisoners' wants. Think about the book of Hebrews. Remember those who are in prison as if you are chained with them. Or Jesus in the book of Matthew talking about those who were in prison and you came to me. Right? Access to prisons was a little bit more routine in first century society than us today. And if a prisoner was going to survive, have food and drink and things like that, it was going to be supplied by those on the outside. Such visits, of course, offered prison guards an opportunity to demand bribes. And it is clear that this practice was widely accepted. What he describes here, dark places of stifling heat. Um, there, there is a prison that has been unearthed in Rome today that some think is the prison uh, that Paul might have been in while he was in Rome. Uh, and it, you can go either way on it. But if it is, it, it is a place that is damp and dank. There is a, a, a small body of water that almost flows through the, the, the bottom foundation of the building. Think, think of like a think of like a water house that you might have had out on a piece of property years ago. A, a well house. That, that are prone to getting leaks and spills of water and things like that. Did you ever open up a door of one of those when the water had been seeping in and you walk in, there's not windows, it's just a shut-off partition building. You open the door and just that, that humid, weighty, uncomfortable air just rushes at you. But imagine that's what you're living in. That's what Mr. Robinson is describing here. Dark places of stifling heat and thirst and hunger, invisible people, darkness. Could you imagine existing in such an environment as that? 
Maybe you've got a window or two, but they're way up here. You're not on the outskirts of town where sunlight can freely come in. Once the sun dips behind the other buildings, there goes the light. And you're plunged back into darkness for how many hours? Dark, dank places. And here is Paul suffering in this environment. Can you imagine what Paul must have looked like? Can you imagine what Paul must have smelled like? Can you imagine existing in an environment like this? Crammed in there with who knows how many other people. Hopeful that somebody brings you food and drink, otherwise you go another day without. When Paul praises Onesiphorus in 2 Timothy chapter 1 in verse 16 for, for refreshing him. Uh, yeah, th- there is a figurative way in which Onesiphorus might have refreshed him. Uh, the same way Paul was brought a refreshing report about brethren in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Uh, but but I, I tend to think that it, this is a more literal idea. That when Onesiphorus found Paul, what did he do? He refreshed him literally. He was suffering and here was Onesiphorus not only raising his spirits, but bringing him food, bringing him something to drink, helping him to survive. That's just exactly what Christians were commanded to do in Hebrews chapter 13 that we quoted earlier. Just exactly what Jesus said his followers should do. In Matthew chapter 25, that's what Onesiphorus did. He refreshed Paul. Could you imagine that? Living in that kind of environment, and then here comes, here comes somebody. And the person coming is for you. brings us to another point there in 2 Timothy chapter 1. In verse 17. He often refreshed me. He was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me. Paul says, and he found me. You ever thought about how Onesiphorus did that? I have had the sad occasion before, maybe you have too, of trying to locate somebody who's missing and one thing you had to do was go check, check the, the jail intake records. And you're getting online and you're looking, okay, did, did, did the county sheriff book them in? No. Did local PD book them in? No. I guess we've got to start calling hospitals. I mean, you can even just get online now and within hours you can find out who's been booked into jail and who's bonded out. Couldn't do that in the first century, could you? How do you think Onesiphorus found Paul? I mean, do you notice the, the, the glowing term? This is not some minuscule thing here. To Paul, this was everything. When he came to Rome, he searched for me, and not only that, he found me. Onesiphorus wasn't out here serving thousands of people. 
But to Paul, this was everything. He searched for me and he found me. Can you imagine a familiar face coming in the door? Just a moment of comfort in an otherwise tormenting place. He found me, Paul said. And we, and we may think, we may be tempted to think, that's not that big of a deal. It might not be that big of a deal until it's you or me who are in that. And it may not be, no, jail for some people. But you ever gone to visit somebody at a nursing home and their face lights up? You ever gone to visit somebody at the hospital and their face lights up? Well, anybody could have done this, you might say. Well, you tell me who. If it wasn't going to be Onesiphorus, who was it going to be? And the point I would simply try to convey to you from this is that you, you can be Onesiphorus. You can be the one who finds the person who is suffering and refresh them. And no, you may not be out serving the masses and you may not be out there feeding and clothing the thousands. But in Matthew 25, Jesus didn't call us to feed and clothe the masses. He called us to feed and to clothe those that we come into contact with. Those that are right there in front of us. Onesiphorus had the opportunity to find Paul and he set about doing just that and he refreshed Paul. Paul praised him for that. And not just Paul, the Holy Spirit praised Onesiphorus for that. He refreshed Paul. He found Paul. Did, did, did you catch that phrase in verse 16 that we skipped over? Go back to verse 16. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus for he often refreshed me. And he was not ashamed of my chains. Uh, we mentioned it earlier, but th think about what Paul's condition must have been. I don't know if Paul had hair or not, but if he did, think about what Paul's hair must have looked like. Think of what Paul must have smelled like. I don't think they had Crest toothpaste and toothbrushes in there. Or Irish Spring. Think of what he must have smelled like. Think of what he must have looked like. I mean, he, he would have looked just like a mess. And the picture we get is Onesiphorus was eager to find him, and when he found him, he was overjoyed at it. There wasn't a hint in the heart or in the mind of Onesiphorus. There wasn't even the, the slightest thought of being ashamed at Paul's condition. He was just glad he found his brother. Paul lays that down as a pattern for Timothy to follow here in 2 Timothy chapter 1. And in verse 8 when he calls Timothy not to be ashamed of me. 
Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Don't be ashamed of me as prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Paul had seen that in playing the life of Onesiphorus and he encouraged Timothy to follow that same good example. And then you come down here to verse 18. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord in that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. And in response to that, I say, no, we don't, Paul. Here's the principle that we sometimes talk about in reading the New Testament books and reading someone else's mail. I'm not always a fan of that language because that somehow implies that or it might lead us to the conclusion that the New Testament epistles really aren't for us, but in fact they are. But there is some sense in which we are reading someone else's mail in the sense that this was first originally intended for Timothy, from Paul. This is something Paul and Timothy both knew about. You know what services he rendered to me in Ephesus. You and I don't. I wish I did. I can think back to some of the events that happened in Ephesus. I know that Paul was there for, for, for a couple of years. And he was working with his own hands, but, but maybe he needed some extra support in that time. Maybe Onesiphorus helped in that. Uh, maybe what Onesiphorus did for him is he supported him during that riot that happened at Ephesus. Maybe Onesiphorus was there supporting Paul, giving Paul advice, strategizing with him, doing something for him. Maybe Onesiphorus was just one of those quiet people like Dorcas earlier in the book of Acts. Who served in very subtle ways. Dorcas made clothes for widows. Maybe Onesiphorus was doing something like that. Whatever it was, it wasn't to the masses. It wasn't big. It wasn't well known throughout the pages of history. But it was meaningful to Paul. It was meaningful to God. And thus you and I in our lives should not despise these small acts of kindness and service that we can do to others. That's just exactly what God calls us to. We can do these small things. And we can be useful to the Lord. In that way, if we're going to serve like Onesiphorus in our lives, number one, we need to be sources of refreshing to those who are around us. That might be physically. That, that might be going and visiting somebody who has no one. That might be going and sitting with somebody at a hospital, going and sitting with somebody at a nursing home, going and sitting with somebody as, as they're awaiting surgery. That's not just the preacher's job. That's all of us. Maybe it's something like that. Maybe it's being a source of emotional refreshment. Maybe it's I know someone out here who's grieving and I'm going to go out there and I'm going to fulfill what Romans 12 says when it says rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Maybe I'm just going to go and be with somebody who's sad just so they don't have to be sad by themselves. Do we realize that's part of God's plan? That's what God calls us to. We're not somehow being less spiritual or less Christ-like when we go and sit with someone who's hurting. When we do that, we're just exactly what God is calling us to be. We need to rid ourselves of this idea that somehow if we're not serving in these grand ways, then we're just not serving well enough. 
Go and sit with somebody. We had an old widow lady at Judson Road. She was originally from Asia. Didn't speak a whole lot of English. She spoke English, but not very well. Kept to herself. Oh, didn't move around all that well. Wasn't a whole lot that she could get out and do. But during my first year there at Judson Road, as I'm a bachelor living by myself for the first time, I can't tell you how many times this sister baked just five or six of these little loaves of sweet bread and just left them for me on my pew on Sunday mornings. Gave me something to take home that wasn't bought from Chick-fil-A or Wendy's. You know, it's little things like that. I don't know that there's anybody else in that whole congregation that knew what she had done. Angie Hedge, by the way. That was her way to serve. I can remember when my grandfather passed away. Driving up to the farm in Gladewater from Arkansas, and we get there, and there's already 15 or 20 cars there. And I remember walking in, one of the first things I noticed in the house is that there's a table shortly after you walk in on your left side, and that table had about three of those deli slice trays from Brookshire's already on it. That, that's how we express our love in East Texas, isn't it? We bring deli meats, we bring fried chicken, or we bring Little Caesars pizzas. Right? I don't know if that's me or not. I'm going to try to cut that down. Ways to serve, aren't they? Not big. Not overwhelming. Folks may not know about it. But it's a way to serve. Be a source of refreshing. Serve physically, serve emotionally, serve spiritually. You know when someone's out there hurting spiritually? Go help them. Sit with them. Talk with them. Pray with them. Read with them. Be with them. Serve without concern of notice or acclaim. Onesiphorus strike you as the kind of person who was worried about getting noticed for what he was doing? Boy, it's amazing what can be done when people don't care who sees and who knows. Onesiphorus just served because it was the right thing to do. Don't be worried about who sees the good acts of service that you do. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, God sees and that's enough. And don't get discouraged when inevitably somebody makes some sort of foolish remark about you or others that you love not serving or not serving enough when they just don't know the kind of service that's been happening. Can I tell you one other real quick personal story? 
I can remember a time when at Judson Road uh, there were some younger people who started to kind of grumble against the eldership. Said they didn't, didn't do a whole lot. They weren't very active. Weren't very involved. And, and what these people didn't know is that those elders were active and involved and doing things. They just didn't raise a flag and blow a trumpet and let everybody know when it was happening all the time. I know stories of those elders, and I'm sure elders here have similar experiences, of driving hours away to the home of a brother or a sister who had left the Lord. And at their own expense, driving out there on their own time just to sit and talk with that person and try to bring them back. Or the times that one of our elders before he died would identify not only people in the community, but people in the church who had fallen on hard times. And would wait until they were out of their house and figure out right before they'd come home and would just drop bags of groceries on their front porch that they'd walk home to. Folks that didn't know it was him and his wife until his funeral, and we finally spilled the beans about it. There are going to be times where people don't know about the good works that you do, and they're going to be grumbling about people that don't do anything. Don't let that discourage you. And shame on them for thinking such evil things about their brethren. You're going to serve like Onesiphorus, you've got to be the person that does little things. I don't know if that's me squeaking or what, but I'm going to try to stand right here and make sure it doesn't happen anymore. Be the person that does the little things. What did Paul say? He eagerly searched for me and he found me. That didn't mean a lot to a whole lot of other people, but it meant the world to Paul. Do the little things. It's okay to do the little things. Be the person that does the little things. Be ashamed of the right things. Paul said, Onesiphorus wasn't ashamed of me. He wasn't ashamed of my chains. We don't need to be ashamed of our brethren. We don't need to be ashamed of brethren who might have lowly circumstances. What we do need to be ashamed about, we read about in the book of Acts, and Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, we need to be ashamed of sin. Be ashamed. If we're going to be ashamed of something, let's be ashamed of that and let's turn from that. But I'm not going to worry about my lowly circumstances or my brethren's lowly circumstances. I'm going to love them whether they're rich or poor. Fine clothes or ratty clothes. We're going to serve God together. Onesiphorus is is praised in connection with his home in both chapters 1 and 4. We we miss sight of everything if in our efforts to serve we fail to serve at home. And as we're thinking about Onesiphorus, that's a message to us as husbands, as fathers, as grandfathers, as uncles. 
We need to lead our families. We need to stake out the righteous path and show our families the way to go. We need to have those conversations. We need to lead that life. We need to lead it consistently. And if we're going to serve like Onesiphorus, it all starts by serving Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 13. Retain the standard of sound words, Paul says, which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. But then he contrasts those two with Onesiphorus. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus. For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and he found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. If we're going to serve like Onesiphorus, if we're going to be the servants that God wants us to be, it's going to all start by us choosing to serve Jesus. If you are not serving Jesus today, you're not the kind of servant God wants you to be. But that can change. And that can change through Jesus. Through His blood. Through the grace that God offers us through Him. If you believe in Jesus and you're willing to confess Him as your Lord, will you turn from your sins? Will you not with Him in baptism and raised to walk a new life? Maybe you look at your life as a Christian you haven't been the servant you need to be. Maybe you need to take care of that between you and God. Maybe you feel like you need the prayers of this congregation and their encouragement. And if you seek that tonight, we want to help you. If there's any way we can help you respond to the gospel tonight, would you come while we stand?